This is Move to Live More, a podcast series profiling thought leaders in healthcare, health and fitness, and communities. We explore the connection between physical activity and mental and physical health. We address solutions for chronic disease, obesity, and physical inactivity through cross-sector collaboration and innovation. Dr. Amy Bantham, the CEO and founder of Move to Live More, with a mission to help people live healthier, longer, more active lives. This episode is brought to you by Move to Live More, a research and consulting firm integrating healthcare, health and fitness, and communities to address chronic disease and physical inactivity. I'm here today with Dr. Lori Witzel, Vice President of Policy Research and Translation for the American Heart Association. Dr. Witzel is also a senior advisor for the Physical Activity Alliance. Our topic today is a unified voice for physical activity advocacy. Lori, welcome. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be with you this morning. Great. Wonderful to have you. Tell me about your role with the American Heart Association. Your title is Vice President of Policy Research and Translation. Tell me about translating science into policy and action. Oh, well, that's a great question, Amy. And I feel privileged to do that every day in, in the work that we do in policy research. You know, we take the science and evidence base that the American Heart Association has, but also, you know, just the general evidence base across the world, you know, globally, and apply it to the policy work that we do. We have reach into communities. Uh, into all 50 states at the federal level and then globally as well in our work. So we are an evidence-based policy-making organization. So science and um, evidence is is what we is the, is the foundation of all that we do. And so we really want to take strategies, take policy that is going to that has evidence for health impact and equity impact, and apply it to our strategic policy agenda and mission. So everything that we do in our advocacy and policy work at the American Heart Association is aligned directly with our 2030 impact goal, um, our mission as an organization, uh, and we prioritize equity in all that we do. So, you know, we have a broad strategic policy agenda. We cover research for heart disease and, and brain research. We cover systems of care, access to quality, affordable health care, and then everything on the prevention side, which is where we're talking today, which is kind of where my personal passion is, of course, the nutrition and physical activity and um, addressing tobacco use. And then um, we're also doing a lot more work on health information technology. And so, you know, it's, it's a broad strategic policy agenda as an organization we're taking a lot on but it's really to achieve um, our, our mission of, of healthier, longer lives. What is challenging about translating science and research and the evidence base into policy and action? Is it the language and the framing? Are you essentially an interpreter? Oh, what a great question. So in some cases we are. In some cases we're taking, you know, research and translating it for policymakers, you know, being able to talk about our policy priorities in language that the policymakers can understand that's relevant for them. 
Um, and maybe that might involve also doing the economic analysis to be able to outline for them the return on investment, the value on investment. But it's also, you know, another challenge is that we sometimes don't have enough evidence for policy that we think is uh, intuitively makes a lot of sense and, and would, you know, transform people's lives. So we need more evidence. And so sometimes we need to pilot policy approaches, whether at the local, state, or even federal level, to see if it works. And then, um, and then if it does, scale it up. So there's the need to do more and better implementation evaluation research. That's really critical. And then, you know, really helping to understand, you know, once a policy passes, does it have the intended impact? We want to make sure that what we're doing in policy doesn't create disparity. You know, often we, we think we're doing something right, and it ends up that we've created an unintended consequence for their policy work. So an example of that would be, you know, we always point to this, but, you know, we worked, we talked to the food industry about saturated fat decades ago and said, you know, saturated fat is a problem. It's, it's, it's you know, tremendously bad on, on the cardiovascular system. You know, we need to take it out of the food system. And, and the food industry responded and they responded with trans fat as the alternative. Come to find out, you know, that also had terrible health consequences. So, you know, now we've had to adjust our nutrition standards across the environment. And so we really want to make sure that we um, are developing policy, creating policy that has evidence for its, its efficacy and that we're not creating unintended consequences and causing harm. So that's part of the work that we do in policy research is uh, that due diligence to put forth a policy agenda that uh, is going to be impactful, equity-focused, strategically aligned, um, and that uh, if, if we accomplish it, will be transformational in terms of population health. What have you found really works and allows you to be successful in making science and research relevant to a policymaker? Yeah, you know, researchers and policymakers um, have different agendas, and they have they speak uh, in different ways, and so we're kind of that conduit, you know, between the two. Um, you know, policymakers are on a very fast timetable. Their timetable is the next election, and as you and I know, research takes a long time, and sometimes, you know, more than a decade, and uh, policymakers don't have that kind of time. They're really worried about, you know, winning the next election. Um, and they're also worried about how to pay for whatever they're asked to, to pass. And so, you know, we often bring the science argument to them, but we also have to bring the economic argument to policymakers. And we also have to bring the health impact. So we speak different languages. And, um, you know, and so doing that translation is really, really important. And I've had to really work, you know, as, as I work in policy research to, uh, you know, I tend to write as a scientist and a researcher. And, and so I have a member of my team, actually, who's really talented in communication um, to different audiences. And so, you know, we take our policy statements and translate those down into fast facts, into streamlined messages that we can cut and paste into grassroots alerts or media statements. Uh, into talking points for our government relations staff. So that's a big part of what we do, learning how to communicate to different audiences. 
you talked about making the economic argument and communicating cost effectiveness and return on investment. In your opinion, where do we get the most bang for the buck in investing in resources to get people physically active? It's a great question, Amy, and I actually think that we need more of those, that economic analysis in our work on physical activity. Um, you know, we have a, we have a new, in terms of policy work in physical activity, we're relatively new. Um, I think we, can, we need to become a lot more sophisticated in our work and um, coordinated. And I think this is one area where we do need a lot more to be able to make that economic argument. You know, we know from whether it's community service, preventive task force, um, and, uh, you know, work that others have done to summarize the evidence base that physical education in schools and creating active routes to everyday destinations or active transportation are two really evidence-based policy priorities for us in the physical activity space. But we could do a lot more to outline the economic argument for those two strategies and talking to CDC and others that that's something that we need to bring to policymakers. I think it's a ripe area for more uh, research and bringing new researchers uh, into, into the work that we do. We need to talk to health economists and bring them into the physical activity space. I think you brought up a really important point about timing. Research takes a long time and is over a long period of time, whereas policymakers are thinking in terms of the next election cycle, for example. How do you reconcile those two, especially when we're talking about return on investment? Yeah, it's not easy. And, um, you know, I, and that's why I think sometimes, Amy, it's really important for us to talk about value on investment. So sometimes we might have a policy priority or policy strategy that's not going to save money in the long term or return money in the long term, but it can improve health and create value. Um, and, and so outlining that value um, argument is, is really most important. And the economists do that well. And, you know, uh, I think also we have to focus in on the equity impact. Too. How do we define equity in our physical activity work? And how do we define equitable impact? We need to think about that. We need to have that lens across all the work that we do. So there's both equity and there's value on investment that I think could be a really major focus as we move forward. Lori, tell me about the Physical Activity Alliance and how it essentially unified three organizations. I mean, this is really exciting. And it's been a year-long process. And I'm just so glad to have the opportunity to talk to you about the Physical Activity Alliance today. We started conversations last June in Washington, D.C. We brought probably 70 people together. Uh, it was about 70 people together and really talked about the idea of unifying our work in physical activity policy. There are so many great things happening, lots of great groups and coalitions working on different issues in physical activity, but the opportunity to coordinate and collaborate could be really powerful. And there was a lot of support in the room for making that happen. And so we had follow-up conversations that led to three organizations, the National Physical Activity Plan Alliance, the National Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity, and the National Physical Activity Society, agreeing to come together into one organization 
to form the Physical Activity Alliance. And we're now, we've now officially accomplished that. The Physical Activity Alliance is now officially stood up as a 501c3. And it brings together the powerful roadmap strategic plan of the National Physical Activity Plan, combined with the advocacy and policy work of the National Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity, with the professional education, public health education work, of the National Physical Activity Society. So they become the grassroots voices of our physical activity policy work, uh, which is really great. And so this is to bring the assets of three organizations together into one is, is really powerful. And we're in the process of setting our strategic policy agenda. I think will be one of the key areas that we'll be really focused on as an alliance is um, embedding physical activity assessment, prescription and referral into the clinical environment, into the healthcare environment. That will be one of our areas of focus. And then just working to position physical activity uh, across the federal policy landscape. And then we want to be able to amplify the important work of others. There is so much great work happening, whether it's promoting outdoor recreation for kids, which the Outdoor Alliance for Kids is working on. Um, the American College of Sports Medicine is trying to assure that the physical activity guidelines for Americans are regularly updated and revised, getting that into statute in Congress. And the FIT Coalition is working on the FIT Act. And so we want to be able to amplify all of that work, but there are one or two key areas that we want to prioritize as an alliance that will hopefully lift everybody's work. And um, we're really looking forward to, to move, move ahead. You mentioned this all took place in Washington, D.C., and I know there are a lot of voices clamoring for attention and resources. How does having a unified, amplified voice help promote this physical activity strategic agenda? Yeah, I mean, I really hope that by coming together, we have, um, as you say, created this unified voice, but I hope that will be appealing to funders there are so there's so much important work for us to do and i think it's much easier for funders to see a unified voice and know where to put resources into making things happen and so i hope it'll be attractive there i thought i think it will also be attractive to federal government agencies because they'll know who to reach out to and who to talk to and understand kind of where the coordination and collaboration is happening um, and so for a lot of reasons, I think it's just so incredibly powerful to all come together and have um, this uh, coordinated approach to the work that we do. It also, I think, is going to add sophistication to our physical activity policy and strategic agenda. Because um, I think, you know, when everybody knows what everybody's working on, um, it lifts all boats. And I think that's, that's our goal here. You mentioned that physical activity advocacy is in the early stages, and I've now heard you mention moving it along towards more sophistication. What does that look like to you? What would be the ideal developed strategy around physical activity advocacy? You know, I would say we're early, we're nascent, and, and I think, you know, I like to 
compare us uh, to some degree to what's, you know, to the nutrition policy side. And so I would say on the nutrition policy side, we, it's been very successfully and well coordinated by the National Alliance for Nutrition and Activity led by CSPI and others, um, American Heart Association, other organizations are part of that steering committee. And it's a coordinated, it's, it has been a coordinated effort now for almost, you know, two decades. And, um, and, and that has really shown impact. I mean, positioning nutrition across the federal policy landscape, whether it's nutrition in schools, nutrition standards in schools, addressing food marketing to kids, addressing uh, food labeling um, and food safety, uh, and then, of course, getting into the agriculture and, you know, farm bill um, and, and uh, all of the nutrition assistance programs, the supplemental nutrition assistance program and child and adult care food program. You know, where nutrition has done a great job of positioning across the federal policy landscape by bringing organizations together, by combining grassroots networks, by um, coordinating media advocacy assets, legal, also taking advantage of legal advocacy. You know, there that's been a pretty sophisticated effort over the last, you know, many years. Um, and so I think we need to get physical activity to that same level of resource, uh, coordination, collaboration. Um, and then, you know, there are four pillars to advocacy, successful advocacy work, policy research, you know, government relations, uh, educating, you know, or educating policymakers, media advocacy, and grassroots. And so putting all four of those together, I think we have four of those elements pretty much in the new physical activity alliance. We want to take all four of those core elements and now apply them uh, to our physical activity policy work. It sounds promising and a critical piece of a unified strategy. And I can hear the excitement in your voice when you talk about it. Quite a long time we've been, we've seen so many successful organizations or groups working on different parts of physical activity policy, but kind of doing it in their own sandbox. And the idea, this is what's been really wonderful about the Physical Activity Alliance is everybody that's come together to make this happen and make this work um, is, is a total team effort. And it is not any one person. It's a group of amazing, talented um, people who have said, you know, we're going to you know, bring the assets of our organization, our personal strengths to this and, and make it all work. And so this is an amazing leadership team that we have for the Physical Activity Alliance. And it's a privilege to work with every one of them. Um, they're, you know, they have each brought something to making the Physical Activity Alliance successful. And I'm just so grateful for it. Lori, my work is around integrating healthcare, health and fitness in communities. And the purpose of the podcast is to bring thought leaders in each of those areas on board to talk about cross-sector collaboration and innovation. And I have found wonderful guests, but I've also found that the issue of worksite wellness has not come up that much. And I know that this is a particular passion of yours and an area where you have a lot of expertise. So I'm hoping that you can share with us some promising developments around worksite wellness. Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I have had the privilege of serving on the board of the Health Enhancement Research Organization, HERO, and they are a wonderful leader in this space. And I, I know you know Karen and, and, and the folks there. And, uh, you know, I, 
there is a lot of there there is a lot of excitement, but um, I say there's also this conversation that's happening in the space to build the evidence base for worksite health promotion. I think one of the most exciting trends in the space right now is that we are acknowledging that we need to actually shift the environment in which people work on work in, um, not just you know the programming, not just worksite health promotion programming but the environment um, is so incredibly important. And, and we're learning that in the midst of COVID right now. A lot of people have the ability to become virtual in their work uh, and that home-based environment can be very good for some and very challenging for others. But that work environment, day-to-day -day work environment is really critical for overall health and well-being. And I think we're acknowledging that in the context of worksite health promotion and trying to find solutions. And then there is some regulation coming from the EEOC. It's, it's imminent. Um, it's really going to have an impact on how worksite health promotion programs are designed and how employers can do health assessment within worksite health promotion programs. So I think that's going to be interesting to see where EEOC lands and how employers can use or not use incentives in the design of their programs. So I think much more to come in the short term. And I think there is it's another area where there's need for continued research to continue to build the evidence base and understand it's another where equity uh, understanding the equity impact of worksite health promotion programs is really important knowing that we have um, blue collar workers or workers with low income who um, might not have access to health care benefits um, just you know sometimes those fundamental social determinants are really critical for health and well-being for all employees and so we really need to have the equity impact the equity lens on in our worksite health promotion work how does covid impact your agenda and priorities around worksite wellness um, well, I, you know, COVID has, has impacted our work across the board, Amy, in, in our, in the, at the American Heart Association, we have shifted our strategic policy agenda um, to be, we're, we always try to be as nimble as we possibly can be. And we actually spent some time thinking strategically about the impact of COVID on the work that we're doing, um, where telehealth, for example, is, is rising and, you know, is an opportunity here to deliver care to our patients, our cardiovascular disease patients. I think that's true for worksite health promotion programming too. You know, what is the role for telehealth in worksite health promotion? And, um, and then just uh, being able to modernize and update our whole public health infrastructure and surveillance infrastructure, COVID is bringing that out um, in the you know worst and best possible way, the need for us to do this. And so we need to um, also, you know, be able to show that intersection between our healthcare system and the public health infrastructure and be able to stand that up. And so Congress has made an investment, a significant investment, and CDC and other agencies are working on, you know, the data modernization and upgrading the surveillance infrastructure, but that's going to take some time and it's, it's an absolute necessity um, as we go forward as a country if we're going to improve population health. So that, I think, applies to all the settings, um, you know, whether it's kids in schools or adults in, in the work site um, or people in communities, you know, we're gonna have to um, continue to, to show the importance of public health and, and, and the intersection with our healthcare. Have you found that COVID is shining a light on chronic disease and the work that you do around nutrition and, and physical activity? 
or are you finding that it is casting a shadow because so much time and attention is focused on infectious disease? I think it's it's a combination of both. Uh, lots of conversation right now about the impact COVID has had on our physical activity levels across the country. Um, and in some cases, you know, and, and so we know that, you know, being physically fit may help, um, you know, uh, you, you know, stay away from, from getting an infectious disease. But um, on the other hand, you know, CDC and other federal agencies are so focused right now on the infectious disease side of things. We want to make sure that the chronic disease work isn't lost in the midst of all that because the chronic disease and, and associated risk factors are putting a lot of folks at incredible risk for COVID. And, you know, if you have, we know that patients with cardiovascular disease, people with high blood pressure, um, diabetes are at, are at increased risk. And so we cannot forget that side uh, while we address this really important pandemic, you know, uh, so it's it's both. I would say, we you know, we have to continue to promote nutrition and physical activity as um, a critical way to um, stay healthy, and then we have to really address, um, you know, the infectious disease and and what this means for people with chronic health conditions. I would just say that you know the other thing is the fiscal environment this is creating. Um, you know, we are going to end up on the other side of COVID with this terrible fiscal environment. And we're gonna to have to monitor and stay on top of that, what that means for chronic disease investment, because federal government, state governments, are, their budgets are gonna be incredibly strained and we're gonna to have to make difficult decisions in the coming year or two ahead. Laura, you focus on so many different areas and I'm very conscious of the fact that I have an article due to you tomorrow and I'm much more of a doer than a writer. So in, in your, when you look at all the things that you have to do and all the priorities for your time and energy, what do you wish you could focus the majority of your time and energy on? <laughs> well. I'm very privileged to work for the American Heart Association and be able to focus, uh, you know, in a mission-driven organization on all the important work that we're doing. But, uh, but I do have, I have to admit, a personal passion for physical activity and the, the work that we're doing with the Physical Activity Alliance, um, the work that you and I are, are working on together, as you say, with the paper, you know, just focusing in on embedding physical activity across the healthcare environment is a personal passion of mine. And you know, yes, if I had the opportunity, I'd love to be able to focus all my time there, but, but I'm also privileged to work for an organization that is um, really focused on overall health impact and well-being. And, and I, um, so I'm fortunate to bring the assets of the American Heart Association to the work that we're doing in physical activity, Amy, but, um, but what we're doing is definitely a personal passion. Wonderful. Listeners, I'm here with Lori Witzel. Lori, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Amy. It's been great to be with you today. Thanks for listening to the Move to Live More podcast series. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out at movetolivemore.com. We'll see you next time.